chapter 2, and we'll be picking up in the 15th verse, and we're just going to do 15, 16, and 17 this morning, and then we'll go ahead and finish up chapter 2 into chapter 3 on Tuesday. But we have enough here in these three verses to, um, we have enough here to leave us with some things to ponder, um, some decisions to make, and some action uh, to be taken in our lives. By the way, um, do you guys understand the battle of the flesh against the spirit in your own lives? Do you understand how there always seems to be, can you relate with Paul when he says the things that I want to do, I don't do, and the things I don't want to do, I do? Can you guys relate with that at all? That there is an identifiable battle that's going on in your life, whether you're going to be led by the spirit or led by the flesh. Scripture tells us, um, walk by the Spirit and you will not, what? Gratify the desires of the flesh. A couple other things um, in regards to just what the Word of God says about our flesh, about sin, about that which is evil, because we're going to be talking about uh, the world today. Um, Psalm 97.10 says, Let those who love the Lord hate evil. Romans 12, 9 says, love must be sincere, hate what is evil. Anybody know that next word? Cling to what is good. Hating evil, clinging to what is good. And that is really the essence of what John is taking us here in this, um, in the middle way here through chapter two. If you remember, by the way, chapter two, verse one, one of the reasons that he's writing this in chapter two, verse one says, I'm writing this so that you may not what? so that you may not sin. And so now we're getting to the passage of Scripture where um, he's just given us a great word, and he desires for us not to sin because we know that sin does what? Sin separates us from God. So oftentimes when we're trying to have the relationship that we know that we should be having with God, but as there's sin that is prevalent in our lives, it's actually keeping, it's hindering that relationship, that communication uh, between us and God from happening. Um, Then we go down the road of kind of feeling empty, maybe powerless, maybe we're powerless against sin and what our flesh wants to do in our lives. Um, And we're just not experiencing the life that Jesus is talking about, about the abundant life that he talks about in John. And it all oftentimes is linked to the battle between our flesh and the battle between the spirit. Um, Scripture tells us that which is spirit is spirit and that which is flesh is what? Flesh. So it's telling us that there's two distinct um, things that are going on in our lives. All men are born, when we're born, we're born into our fleshly nature. It's, we call it the Adamic nature or the the nature that we receive from great, 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 great grandfather um, Adam. And we have that nature. But then when Christ Jesus saves us, the Holy Spirit comes and dwells in our lives and we are given a what? A new nature, and that new nature is, it's spiritual. But now we're still wrapped, and here's where the big battle comes. We now have the Spirit of God. We now have that spiritual nature in us, but we also still have what other nature? We still have that fleshly nature. And each and every person in this room understands our fleshly nature and what it desires to to do. And more importantly, we should say that the fleshly nature is not happy that there's a new nature that's ruling your life, that there's another nature within you. Your fleshly nature 
wants to supersede Christ Jesus and it wants to be the Lord of your life. It wants to have control of you. And understand this, our fleshly nature desires to master us. As we quoted back in Genesis uh, chapter 4 with Cain and Abel, and God comes to Cain, and we just hit this uh, within the last week, and he says, Cain, if you do what is right, won't you be accepted? Sin is crouching, what? At your door, it desires to master you or to have you. You must master it. Sin's crouching at your door, it desires to have you. Now, sin is going to work, sin is going to work together along with our flesh. And our flesh is always going to produce sin. That is what the flesh does. It is always contrary to the will and to the nature of God. So that's why scripture tells us to hate what is evil and what? And cling to what is good. Anything from our fleshly nature, we're going to get into that in just a moment, is going to be contrary to God's nature, His will, His love, his plan for your life and my life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to just gather together in your name to glorify you. And Father, as we come to your word, we ask that your Holy Spirit, as he speaks to us, may our hearts be softened in such a way that we would hear your truth, what you're speaking to each and every one of us. And Father, that we would respond, that there would be action regarding your word. Not just a warm fuzzy, but Father, that there would be faithfulness and following and fulfilling your word. Father, may that be the desire of our lives, to know your will and to be obedient to your will, to experience your love in a greater way than we ever have before, to be free from the bondage of sin, and Father, to live victoriously in this world, proclaiming you and leading others towards the glorious light. In your son's name, we give you praise. Amen. Well, this is what John says under the inspiration, of course, of the Holy Spirit. He says in verse 15, Do not love the world or anything in the world. Now, John has been talking to us about sin. He's been telling us, you know, we've talked about the destructive nature of sin. It separates us from God. Um, we often, as we're involved in sin in our lives, that it's going to keep us from being able to make godly decisions, right? If we're trying to make God-honoring decisions in our lives, but yes, there's sin that is separating us from the understanding of God's will for our lives, can we quite possibly be making God-honoring decisions? No, we can't be. That's just that's the truth of the matter. And so as we get into this, John simply says this, do not love the what? The world. Now, is he talking about the earth? Is he talking about hating dirt? You know, because it's so dirty. Now, some of you guys are cleaning fanatics. Um, and, you know, is it just that, you know, he's saying, hey, hate dirt, hate anything else that has dirt on it? Absolutely not. What he's simply saying is this. In the scripture, there are three uses for this concept of world. Um, the first one would be, uh, the planet Earth itself, um, the Earth, uh, the Earth, or the world is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Um, going back to Psalm, I think one hundred one. Going back to Psalms, I might even have that written down. 
the earth is the Lord's or the world is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And that word earth or world, it's just talking about the sphere of the earth that's hung in outer space. The second way that we understand the word world is uh, humanity, uh, men and women that, that are created, that God has created in this world. And we would be most familiar with that concept from John 3.16 that says God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And he's talking about humanity. It's not that God loved the sphere that he made and put into space, but he loves mankind. And so when we see the word world, it could refer to um, the earth, the sea, uh, the land, the air and everything, or it could be referring to mankind itself. And then John is giving us this uh, concept here and he says, do not love the world. So is John saying, don't love dirt? That doesn't sound right, does it? Is he saying, don't love mankind? Is that, does that sound like God in any way whatsoever? So we know that he's talking about something different. And what John is speaking about is he's talking about the world system and how the world operates. What you and I as believers must understand, let me read it to you how I have it written. The world system is orchestrated to keep men in subjection to its ruling force. Everything in this world is operating in such a way to keep people in bondage. The world is operating in such a way today, it's to keep the lost lost and to keep those who are redeemed ineffective and powerless. That is the goal of this world system. Scripture tells us that Satan, uh, that he's the ruler of this darkness. He's the prince of the air. And Satan's world system is now being is now what we see in this world. This is not God's plan for mankind. This is Satan's plan, and we see uh, how corrupt it is. As a matter of fact, when we get back into um, Revelation chapter eighteen, um, it talks about the Babylonian the Babylonian uh, commercialization system and how it's going to be destroyed. And how long is it going to dis- to take to destroy the world economy? according to Revelation. Bam! It's there. And all the wealth of the world is going to be gone, and men are going to be reduced to slavery like that. And that is all what we hope on. All of the loans that we have and the money that we make and what we have in in the stock market and in certain funds and all of that and the things that we have acquired and in our possessions. What Scripture says that like that it's going to be reduced to absolute nothingness. There's going to be no worth, no value in any of it whatsoever. It is interesting. John is telling us, do not love the world or anything in it. When we go back to Genesis or when we go back to Exodus, we see that God was liberating his people from the bondage of what nation? The Egyptians. And he was calling, and we said that Egypt is a picture or a type or a symbol of what? It's a symbol of the world. And God did what to his people in regards to that? He did what? He took his people out of the world. He separated them from that world system. And do you remember that as they wandered in the wilderness and they came up to uh, the promised land, getting ready to cross the Jordan, that that's whenever General Joshua had to turn around to the people and he told them, the idols that you guys have taken from Egypt your family idols and so forth, he said, you need to get rid of those before we come into this land. And what had happened is as the people had been delivered from that world system of Egypt, 
and had been brought out into the wilderness, they were still clinging to the world. Do you remember when they first got out of Egypt? They got out into the wilderness. Things were tough. Food was scarce. They didn't have any um, identifiable water and so forth. And, and they asked Moses and they said, hey, Mo, did you bring us out here because there's not enough graves in Egypt to bury all of us? Is that, what, is that the plan? You've brought us out here? And the people started thinking about the good life that they used to have back in Egypt with the leeks and the garlic and the onions. And they, they called them flesh pots where they had you know, pots with meat that they could cook in it. And all of a sudden, having been delivered out of a horrendous situation, they started looking back at Egypt. And how are they looking at it now? They're now looking at it favorably. Wow. Man, we had it so good when we were back in Egypt. Do you remember that whenever Moses went and talked to Pharaoh and Pharaoh got angry that Moses was telling him, my God says, let my people go. Do you remember that he, he set harsh taskmasters over the people as they were baking bricks and told them you can't have any straw. Now you guys are responsible to go find your own straw, make your own bricks, and the quota that is required cannot fall below where it's at. And the people are like, this is impossible. And it was horrendous lifestyle that they were living there. They were all in slavery. And they all desired nothing more than be set free from it. But they're set free, and then a short time later, as they look back at it, now all of a sudden, they're thinking, oh, that was so nice, so wonderful. God had separated his people from the world, but the human inclination is always to gravitate back towards the things of this world. It's the fleshly inclination of us to go towards the things of this world to become obedient to our flesh god also in his great and mighty hand worked in the israelites lives whenever he allowed the babylonians to come and conquer jerusalem and although the people thought you know this is god's judgment against us in a sense it was but god was allowing that to happen so that he could work in a great and mighty way in his people's lives. That's why he tells Jeremiah, tell the people in 70 years, I'll go ahead and release you. I know the plans that I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, give you hope in a future. We're all familiar with that passage, and that's what God is saying. I'm allowing this to happen because I'm trying to purify you. They got off base, they got off target, and they had become very worldly people. As a matter of fact, they had become just like the nations that they were sent there to kick out and remove. And they had actually become worse than those nations. So God sends them to Babylon into captivity. They're there for 70 years. And after 70 years, you would think that everybody was ready to come home, wouldn't you? But what happened? There was just a remnant of people that were willing to come back. Well, we have a good life here in Babylon. By the way, just by way of kind of doing just backtracking just a little bit, Babylon is, is the area where, what, what famous structure was built back there early on? I think it is Genesis chapter 11. Yeah, the Tower of Babel. And we know that there at the Tower of Babel or in Babylon, that that is the, that is the center for all false religions. Up to that point in history in mankind, there was just men either accepted God or they rejected God. There wasn't other false gods that men were worshiping. It was either God or they rejected him. But at the Tower of Babel, at Babylon, that is where all false religions that are in the world today can all be traced back. If you keep going, keep going, it'll all go back to that center of Babylon. 
it's the center of worldliness. It's the picture of worldliness. And what happened to the Israelite people is they were there. Now they're, in a, now they're back in a situation, a very worldly place, and God gives them the opportunity to leave. But what did most of the people do? They stayed there. Do you know what they learned there in Babylon, by the way? They learned, they learned a commercialization system that they had never experienced before. That you could actually make stuff and sell it, or you could buy a product from this guy, turn around, remarket it, and sell it to this guy over here, and make a little money on it. And in essence, you never had to go work, really, for it. You're just exchanging money, exchanging stuff, and they fell in love with that concept of making money without working. You see, up to that point, before they came into Babylon, they were primarily an agrarian culture, which means that they were all farmers. But after they went into Babylon, oh, they learned the quick way to make a buck. And when they were given the opportunity to leave that world system, they didn't like it very much. Because they like the way that the world operates. Once again, I'll reference for you Revelation chapter 18. It's speaking about that Babylonian commercialization system that we see going back thousands of years. We'll see it destroyed in one day. It's the system by which the whole world works on today. Completely, it's completely corrupted. It's designed and orchestrated and led by men under the headship of Satan himself. So John tells us this, don't love the what? The world or anything in the world. Watch out for how much you love the things of this world. And if the Spirit of God is in you, the Spirit of God's going to discern for you. He's going to give you understanding is what is of the world and what is of God. And we see today primarily in our Western culture we have a lot of wealth in our culture. And we see a lot of people who choose their wealth over God. Or they try to do this, they try to combine the two things. And for most people, they can't separate it. Now let me say this. You can be a faithful follower of Jesus Christ and God can bless you with great wealth. But it is a very hard thing for most men, that's why Jesus speaks about our money and how we handle it and glorifying God. He speaks more about that than anything else in Scripture because he knows that money masters people. And he, was, and he speaks to us time and time again about the things of this world and our money. And he tells us, don't be mastered by this. And he tells us to be easy with our money. Hold on to it loosely. Don't make so many plans that all your money disappears into your goals. But take what you've been given and serve whom with it? Serve the Lord with your finances. And that goes into any other area of any other type of worldliness that is out there. And he's saying in the word of God and what John is telling us, do not love the world or anything in the world. Why? Because the world is in direct opposition to the believer. Did you know that? Did you know that the world is in a battle against you? And you may think, well, I haven't really been noticing a battle of the world against me. It's because you're numb to the battle. Because when you become aware of the battle you become well aware of it and you see the battle 
everywhere. Go turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 15. We're going to hit John chapter 15 and then also John chapter 17. Now, in John chapter 15, this is Jesus speaking. This is the last night that he's having with his disciples. This is the night where they're going to have have Passover together. We call it the upper room experience. Um, The last supper is another thing that we call it. Um, And so this is the last night that Jesus is with his disciples. And look in John chapter 15, verse 18. And this is Jesus speaking. He says... If the world, now what kind of world is that speaking about? Talking about the system of, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have what? Chosen you out of the world. Same thing that we see that God has done whenever he pulled his Israelites, the Israelites out of Egypt, when he set the people free from Babylonian captivity, when he sets the sinner free from this world system. And Jesus is saying, I have chosen you out of the world, and that is why the world hates you. We should be realizing that the world and its system and its structure is greatly opposed to our lives. If it's not, we've become numb to it, and we're probably participating more in it than what we actually realize. Do you know... Well, I'm not going to go there. Verse, uh, let's look over at chapter 17 real quick. This is Jesus with this high priestly prayer. And he says in verse 14, John 17, 14... I have given them, he's, he's praying to his father, I have given them, he's saying, Dad, I've told you, or I've told them everything you told me. I've given them your word, and the world has what? Hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from what? From the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth, because your word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. Now what Jesus is saying is this. His disciples have the word of God. He's now spoken that to them. And as God the Father sent the Son into this world to do a specific work, the work of redemption to accomplish that, fulfilling the will of the Father, so too now Jesus is sending his disciples, where? Into the world to continue to do the same work. And then Jesus says this, as I have been sanctified, or that word means what? Set apart, saint, holy, all of that. As I have been sanctified, now too, I'm doing that for my disciples. John 17, 17, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. So what is it in our lives that's actually going to set us apart from the world other than the Holy Spirit? What is it that's going to have the effective work to keep us separated from the world? What's Jesus saying, John 17, 17? 
is going to be the word of God. And where there is the absence of the word of God, the flesh is going to be ruling and reigning. It's a hundred percent positive. It's the fact. It's the way that it works. As a matter of fact, let me see how I have it written here. When we love the world, or let me read this next part here. In uh, 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, back over to our text. He says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, you guys there? The love of the Father is what? Is not in him. Now, John is not talking about sonship. He's not talking about we're losing our salvation. By the way, is John, when he's writing this, is he writing this to believers or non-believers? He's writing it to believers. So he's telling believers now that when you love the stuff of the world, the love of the Father is what? It's not going to be in you. Well, how's that happen? Well, the love of the Father is not in an individual because their love that they are pursuing is coming from the things of what? The things of this world. So now love to them is what they're getting from this world instead of receiving the Father's love. So now what happens in a believer's life, when a believer becomes very worldly in their life experiences, things that will happen, that will start happening, is the first thing is that there, there will be a lack of God's love in their lives. And then the second thing that will follow very shortly after that, it will become a numbness or a, there will be an absence of taste for spiritual things. There won't be the desire for that. They'll read the word of God and it won't be effective. They'll pray, but it feels powerless. They'll get together with the fellowship, but it all seems so meaningless. And as a person becomes more and more worldly, they stop taking on the characteristics of God and they become numb to the things of God because they're finding satisfaction or fulfillment temporarily in the things of what? Of the world. And then the difficult place that 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 places a Christian in is that then they're trying to make decisions in their lives under the headship of God while being very worldly in their lifestyle, they're trying to make spiritual decisions in their lives. Do you see the difficulty that that presents as believers? We're trying to find the will of God. Most people, by the way, that come that have come to be in Angela and who were, quote, you know, I'm trying to find the will of God, I will say that a majority of them, not all, some were, were sincere and seeking, you know, some guidance and some wisdom and prayer. But many people who have come to us and that they were seeking God's will for their life were outside of God's will in just their daily living in their Christian walk. But yet they're trying to make big decisions about their lives while being very far from the things of God. Does that make sense? And there's a great difficulty that that presents for the Christian because then we start making decisions based on our own understanding and then we have to prove that this is of God. Oh, this is surely of God. One thing as I was studying through this that that I noticed about, and, and we've all been in the scenarios that I'm talking about, is that people who often are seeking the will of God, are people that come to us and, and maybe, they're, maybe they're unhappy you know, about a certain situation or whatever the deal may be, people will often say, well, we've been seeking God about this. We've been praying to God about this. But the one thing 
whenever I'm aware of, of sin that's going on in their lives, and if I'm aware of sin, it means that there's often a lot more that's going on there. What often is always left out is people always say, well, we've been praying about this. Maybe you guys have heard that phrase before. We've been praying and we think that God is leading us to do dot, dot, dot. Do you know what's always left out of that equation? The balance of the word of God. It's always absent every single time that somebody wants to do something that they want to accomplish something in their lives and do it under the banner of God and it's wrong, there will always be the absence of the word of God because you can't contradict the word of God, but you can have an emotional experience praying. Do you know that lots of people in the world pray? Lots of people who are lost. I know people who are lost that pray and probably pray a lot more than most Christians pray. And they pray and they pray and they pray. And we always have to make sure that what we're praying, that we're also finding the balance in the word of God as well. John is telling us this. If you're in love with the world and you have become a worldly person, the love of God is starting to grow dim in your life. And when the love of God starts to grow dim, John has been talking about unity in the fellowship. There will begin to be a drifting away. There will be an absence of connection with the body of believers. Church may be a participatory event, but actually participating in the lives of other believers will start to wane and become dim and dimmer and dimmer and dimmer in our lives to where we're an attendee of church things. We come and we go, and that's what our lives consist of in our spiritual nature. John is saying this. Consider if worldliness has any type of hold or an effect upon your life because it's going to separate you from God Almighty. It's going to separate you from His will. It's going to separate you from His Word. And when we're separated from God, let me say that in a different way, we will inevitably start to separate from His Word. We won't have the desire to be in His Word. And then we will not have the desire to fulfill His will. Jesus says, my food is to do the will of Him who sent me. We should also be able to say that our food the thing that we desire more than anything in this life is to fulfill the will of God. Not a job, not a place to live, not our next great purchase, not our children, but simply to live for the will of God. Seek first His what? His will. And then what happens? Everything else falls into its rightful place that it may glorify God. And that's what God's trying to bring us into. John writes this, by the way. He says, I write you this letter in chapter 1 that your joy may be what? Complete. Man, he wants us to be free from the bondage of sin, which is really this attack of the world against us. Let me say this again, that the world system is orchestrated to keep men in subjection to its ruling force or ruling power. And it desires to have you under its thumb. It desires to make you a workhorse. It desires to make you to spend your finances on its things. By the way, we'll get there in a minute. For everything in the world, verse 16. How much? How many? Everything in the world. The cravings of sinful man, or you could say the lust of the flesh. The lust of his eyes. And the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but what? From the world. Did you know, and of course most of you guys probably do because I've talked about this maybe seven or eight times, 
Satan has three plays against you and me. He only has, he has uh, one guy illustrated like this. If, um, if the Kansas City Chiefs were playing against mm, the Oakland Raiders, and the Oakland Raiders only had three plays, three offensive plays, and they're just going to run one after the other. One, two, three, maybe two, three, one, maybe three, one, two, and so forth. But they only had three plays. What do you think the outcome of that game would be? Typically, you would think that the Chiefs would win. They only have three plays. Instead of, they probably have a couple hundred variations. And they probably have several dozen plays with, with a couple hundred variations. Uh, this is a bad analogy because the, the Chiefs would still lose. But... Um, but the truth, what? Ouch. Well, is it true? <laughs> no, just kidding. But you know the point. Satan has three plays. He has three things that he comes up against us with. And John is telling us those three things that Satan's going to attack us with. The first thing is this, the lust of the flesh. The second thing is the lust of the eyes. And the third thing, the pride of life. Those are the three areas where Satan will defeat you and me and any other man or woman in this world. Only has three plays. Lust of the flesh. It's dealing with those things that are of our, our old nature, that edemic nature we were talking about. Um, things like our desire for food, um, our desire for water, uh, the desire for uh, things sexual and so forth. And those are all that, those base kind of instincts that God has put us in, into desire that our bodies, you know, crave those things. And none of those things are in and of themselves wrong. But what the world system desires is to take those things that God has given us that are not innately wrong, but to transform those into dishonoring God. Things that are working against our spiritual nature which inevitably are working against the very kingdom of God and God himself. Have you ever noticed how much control your flesh has over you? Oh, sleep, 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 sleep. I'm a sleeper. I love to sleep. I could literally, if I stopped talking for about seven minutes here and just went like this, I could probably fall asleep. I love sleep. I love to take naps. It's not healthy for me. As a matter of fact, that's a bad sign. That's, that's a bad sign for a guy my age to be able to just lay down in the middle of the day. It means that I'll die early. But I'm working out now, so you know, I'm sure I'll live till 140. You ever noticed how you're driving down the road and you think, boy, that sounds awfully good. I could just pull into the drive-thru here. And you think, you know what? I don't really need that, nor do I really need to spend the money on it. And then the next thing you know, you're pulling through the drive. Has somebody ever experienced that before where you said, I don't need that. Anybody? Okay, Brad. Ha okay, there he goes. I have some truthful people out here. Bill says that's never happened to him before. <laughs> and our flesh is always trying to master us. We talked this morning, by the way, in this, uh, man, this was, I thought this was a phenomenal chapter, not because it was just three pages long. <laughs> but we were talking about the issues of the flesh. He's talking about self-control. And this is one area 
where our flesh really rears its head. And our flesh, oftentimes, if we're not careful, it will tell us what to do and we'll become obedient to it. This is what I need to do. And he was talking about that, uh, Bonhoeffer was talking about, how do we deal with our flesh? Because everybody here in this room has probably tried to conquer some type of a fleshly issue in their life, right? And has failed, right? For most of us, we don't even have to go into great areas of sin. We could just say, how many of us have said that we'd start memorizing scripture or that we'd get up every day and spend a few minutes in the word or, or that we would uh, dedicate to, to praying, you know, a, a little bit every day sometime. And we found that to be so difficult and almost utterly what? Impossible. What is our big barrier there? It's our flesh. Well, because we could make the decision to get up earlier have fellowship with the Lord, but our body would sure love to what? Sleep. We always make provision to eat several good meals a day and probably snack in between, but boy, that five or ten minutes to get away, it's sometimes so tough because, well, we need to eat lunch. And our body is always fighting us. And as we were talking this morning, this kind of concept came out. It's because oftentimes when we're trying to battle the flesh, we're just trying to battle the flesh for the purpose of not doing something anymore. Does that make sense? Yeah. I want to get up and read the word of God, but if I'm going to get up early and read the word of God, it means that I'm going to have to limit my what? My sleep time. And for some people, that's easier than other people. But it's a battle, isn't it? I often hear people say, well, that's just not in my nature. Memorizing scripture? Oh, that's so not me. So what? Hard. Well, you know what? You're exactly right. That is not part of your old nature. And what you're saying is, my old self, it doesn't want to do that. And whenever we agree with ourself and we end up saying, I don't want to do it, we're being mastered by what? Our flesh. Communion with God is being diminished. We're no longer going to have an appetite for the word. And we're no longer going to have the desire to even fulfill the will of God in and through our lives. But we have been given a what kind of nature? A new nature. A spiritual nature. And the spirit of God is the word of what? It's truth. The spirit of God is truth. And when we rely on the spirit of God... We will have the desire for the word of God, which brings us into closer communion with God, which will bring us then, delivers us into a desire for his word and to work out his will in our lives. It's very simple and very basic. The reason why we don't do those things that we know that we should be desiring is because we're following in our lives the flesh in other areas. And John is saying, hey, We're not talking condemnation. We're just saying, hey, it's the realization of what's going on. Now you know where the battle is. Now you know where to focus your attention and where to aim the sword of God at. But this is what I thought was interesting about Bonhoeffer. Uh, He had a great insight to this. And he's talking about fasting. Um, And when you fast, really what you're doing is you're putting the body, the flesh into subjection. You're telling the flesh, you know what? A lot of times, most of the time, people are fasting from food. 
Um, you don't fast from air, you fast from food. And as people fast most of the time from food, and it comes around lunchtime, oh, their stomachs, our body lets us know, our flesh tells us, it's now time to eat. And when we fast, we say, I'm not going to be obedient to you. And it becomes very difficult oftentimes, doesn't it? And if we fast for 24 or 36 hours and we come around to that dinner time and we're used to eating, not only lunch but dinner at a prescribed time, and we say, I'm not going to give in to you. You desire to master me and to rule my life. I give you more attention than I do the things of God. And then there's an even bigger battle that happens in our life, isn't there? Because the body is saying, feed me, but not only feed me, it's telling us to obey it. And that's what God was telling Cain. Your sin desires to have you in obedience to it, but you better make sure your flesh is obedient to you. It's really should be a part, you know, as I read this and we talked about it this morning, having areas in our lives where we're constantly battling against the flesh should be something that is consistent in our lives. We should always have something because the flesh desires to rear up. But here's what I thought was interesting. In regards to fasting or self-control in certain areas, trying to conquer the flesh, we often do it because we just say, flesh is evil, me conquer, and you, you be set aside. But Bonhoeffer said this, the purpose of fasting or self-control, there's only one purpose in it. And it's to make the disciples more ready and cheerful to accomplish those things which God would have done. The reason why Paul would say, um, 1 Corinthians 9, that he beats his body into subjection to master it. He says that he does that. And the purpose of why he does that is so that he can in a greater way fulfill the will of God in his life. That is the reason that we exercise self-control, things like fasting in our lives, that we may fulfill God's will in our lives. Not so that we become better people, not so that we become free from our flesh. We do it for the purpose that it brings glory to God. Because if you're doing it for yourself, you will always what? But if you have a greater purpose, an eternal purpose for doing it, you can be what? Throw some good, nice words out there. I like victorious. You can be victorious over your flesh. Well, there's a lot of things there in that chapter, and if you have access to that, I would encourage you uh, to read it. It is um, chapter 16. So James is telling us this. The first thing, the first play that Satan has against us, it's our flesh, the lust of the flesh. It desires to master you. The second thing is this, the lust of the eyes. Did you know that your, that your eyes have cravings? That your eyes lust for certain things? Have you ever heard this term? Feast your eyes on this. Isn't that odd? And our eyes develop an appetite for what we look at. And it searches and our eyes are always searching. And our eyes even see much more than we even recognize in our minds. And our eyes, oh, so easily can deceive us. David would say that he has essentially made the decision that he put no vile thing in front of his eyes. That he would walk in righteousness in his house. That he would not go that way. He would protect his eyes. Job said the same thing. Hey, he's going to put his eyes under check, in check. 
And it's interesting that the eyes are a gateway into our minds and to our hearts. We allow so much in and through our eyes that is actually defilement to the spiritual vessel, this holy vessel. And one of the great ways, um, it's interesting that a lot of the commentators that I read, um, some of them were writing their commentaries back in the 70s and 80s, and some of, uh, some of the audio stuff I listen to are always are, are back, in the, back in the 80s. And uh, it's always interesting, you know, when you're reading a commentary and, and, you know, they're writing about Russia before, you know, before the wall, before Russia collapses. Or back in the 80s, uh, somebody was talking about, you know, North Korea and stuff. And um, so it's always interesting to see how things change over a couple decades. And what, what the big deal was back in the 70s, 80s um, was television. That was, there was a lot of stuff that was coming into people's homes. And, and I was, as I was thinking about this, it used to be that your home was your sanctuary, right? If there was one place that you could retreat in this world and get away from this world system, it was your what? It was your home. And your home was to be a place of retreat, a sanctuary where you didn't have to fight the whole time against the world system, but you could go and you could rest and relax. Does that make sense? And then through television, through cable, through internet, through cell phones, we now pump that stuff straight into the place that's supposed to be a what? Sanctuary. And now that stuff comes in and is literally just defiling the whole house. You can never sit there and be relaxed. So do you know what we do as good Christians, followers of God? We sit there and we watch it, we participate it, and we do it. And we become numb to it to the extent where we're like, well, I would never do that stuff, but I'll just watch it. It is interesting. You guys ever seen a movie, by the way? where they're trying to retrain somebody's mind and they're trying to make them, you know, a killer. I've never seen such movies, but... <laughs> but there used to be a way of reprogramming people, and I'm sure that they still do it today, where they, they just flash graphic issues for hours and hours and hours and hours, and it actually will, will retrain somebody's mind. You guys ever come across that concept in a, in a movie or anything? And literally, Brit's saying, I, I would never do such things in my life, Steve. But, but, there's that, but they show them graphic pictures. And literally, we know scientifically that you can create a killer by showing somebody continually for hours and days, weeks, months, and years. If you continue to show them pictures of killings, they themselves will turn into a killer. And it's interesting that we know that to be true, but yet we'll allow certain things to come into our homes, our computers, our cell phones... And we say, well, it doesn't really have an impact on me or on my family. My friend Joe, wasn't supposed to say that out loud. My friend Jaime, my friend Joe who lives way far out of state, you guys, none of you guys know, no, you guys don't really know my friend Joe. We were talking the other day. And he said, you know, Steve, uh, we were talking about the issue of just, you know, what we allow into our homes and what we just literally waste our time on. Um, Television, for the most part, I'd say 99% of television is a complete waste of time. Um, And I believe that the majority of stuff that we do on the Internet, especially if we're just searching, it's just a complete waste of time. And he said, you know, Steve, it's interesting. He just got a, um, uh, they got their... uh, 
their fancy phones. What are they called? Smartphones. And he said, you know, it's an amazing thing, Steve, that we would sit there in front of the television. They have children. We'd sit there in front of the television with the show on, and we're both doing our cell phone, our smartphone thing, and our children, he said, are sitting. So we're not getting anything from the program, but we have to watch it. We're not really getting anything from the phone. And he said, you know, I could either be working on my phone, trying to set it up, or even games. And he said, we'd be sitting there in front of the television. We have the television on because we have to watch it because that's what people do in this society. And then we would actually have our cell phones on. So we're not paying attention to that. We're doing this. And what we were doing on our cell phones was absolutely meaningless. And our children are watching us learning how a family operates inside of a Christian home. And he said, that was really convicting to me. We're teaching our children that our lives, once we are not obligated to work or punch the clock anymore, once that time has stopped, that we do absolutely nothing productive with our lives from that point on for the rest of the night. And he said, that is how we have trained our children. Do you know who's trained us to be like that? It's the world system. The world system has been training us to be lazy. The world system has trained men to no longer be men, to be lazy to be unproductive with their time, to not work hard, to work as least as possible, to get by, but don't go beyond that. The lust of the eyes. Man, there's so much that comes into our lives. In our eyes, and we'll sit there and we'll watch television or movies or computer or play, play games. I just want to say for the men here, Paul says that when I was a child, I did childish things. I played games. That's what life is about for a kid, right? You do some hard work, but there's a lot of playtime that you have, a lot of going out and exploring and adventures. But he says that, man, there came a time in my life when I put away childish things. I would encourage you, men and women, put away the childish things. There's no value in it. For one, it may be games. For another person, it may be watching stuff on television that has absolutely no benefit for your life or for the kingdom of God whatsoever. If you're going to watch something, watch something, but at least let it have a good moral content of some type. Put on the old um, Little House on the Prairie or, or, or Opie or you know something like that, My Three Sons. Put on something that actually was teaching good moral values because you cannot find good moral values on television today. The world doesn't want it. And you will find that your flesh and the lust of your flesh and the lust of your eyes is going to fight you against putting away things that are meaningless in your life. Because this world system in your flesh would love to reduce you to nothing but a vegetable that sits on a sofa and is completely unproductive in your life. The third area that John tells us is this. The first one was the lust of the flesh, then to the lust of the eyes. And the third one was the pride of life. So proud of what you accomplish in life or what you're striving to do. It has much more kind of, of, a, of an intellectual background to it. And, and so often the world tells us to pride ourselves in our accomplishments. Sometimes in our pride, we want to prove to other people how successful, how great that we have become. It's kind of like the big farce when you go to your high school reunion and everybody there is talking themselves up more than what they really are. 
I can remember a young man, he was in the youth ministry, and his cell phone, as, as you called it, and it went to voicemail. He would give his name, and then, you know, he would talk about all, you know, that he was, you know, the minister of such and such and such and such and such. Hey, I'm just wanting to talk to the guy, you know. And so often we can, we can pride ourselves. You ever, you ever sat across a chair from a man who, and has all of his degrees framed back behind him? And the only reason that those degrees are there is so that you know how what? How important that person is. No, I'm not saying you have to, if you have a degree, stomp it on the ground, throw it away, put it somewhere. But if you line it up so that when people look at you, they see your degree behind you from Harvard, because all of you have graduated Harvard, Be very careful about pride. Pride comes before what? Before fall. And what pride does for us is pride tells us, I don't really need to follow God because I've got this. I don't need to be faithful in finances because I've got this. I'm smart enough to know how this works. I don't need to follow God and his plan for raising children because I've got my own understanding. Because my parents trained me up perfectly, so now I know exactly how it needs to be. By the way, do you know how we learn to raise children, how to use our finances, how, how to have relationships for the most part? We learn it from oftentimes broken down relationships around us and from television and movies. And then we go on and we try to implement those things. The one thing that we need more in our life than anything is the Word of God to teach us how to be the pictures of Christ, the picture of Christ in every aspect and every area of our lives. He tells us this. By the way, I I wanted to to give you this understanding, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and pride of life. When you go back to Genesis chapter 3, Eve looked at the fruit and it was appealing to her. Lust of the... She also noticed that it would be good to eat. Lust of the... And... It would make her be, it would bring special wisdom to her and she would become like God. What would that be? The pride of life. Satan attacked her at once with those three things, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and pride of life. In Matthew chapter 4, Satan, or Jesus in the wilderness for the 40 days, Satan comes to him. Hey, turn these stones into bread. You're hungry, I know you are. Lust of the flesh takes them up um, takes them up on top of the temple and says cast yourself down and tell the angels command the angels to come and save you pride of life I'm indestructible I'm God and then the third thing was this he took him up onto a mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and he said I will give you all of these things if you bow down to me lust of the eyes And so often Satan will show us things or we'll see things and we're like, that's what I want. Do you see how easy all of it is? Here's another example that that I thought of. Um, David was up on his roof and he looked down and he saw Bathsheba. And I'm going to say she was probably a good-looking gal. Lust of the eyes. Then he started to inquire about who she was because he desired to have her to be with her, which is the lust of the flesh. And go and read it. When he inquired of who she was, they told him she's a married woman. That's the wife of Uriah. And then the next phrase says, 
He sent them to go get her. And he was exhibiting his what? The pride because he's what? And whatever the king wants, the king gets. Do you see how easy all of those things? Satan may just come at us with one thing. Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life. Let me also say this before we move on. All Satan does in our lives is cast bad seed with little hooks in it in our direction. He doesn't know if your weakness is lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, or pride of life. But he's throwing it out there. And as soon as he throws one and you take a nibble on it, you know what the fish are biting for. So do you change bait then? No, if you want to catch a fish, you throw, you throw the bait out there that the fish are biting for. That is why we think of the lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and pride of life. You have David saying, I'll set no vile thing back in Psalms. You have Paul saying, I'm going to beat my flesh. I'm going to master my flesh in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And you have Jesus being spoken about in Philippians chapter 2 where it says that he made himself of no reputation or he made himself of no reputation. He made himself a servant. He did not come saying, I'm God, everybody obey me. He came in humility. He surrendered himself to be a servant. John tells us this. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. The question is always this. How do we know the will of God? That's been a question that every single person in this room has probably asked themselves. How do you know the will of God? Well, the will of God is found in His Word. The will of God, three areas. The first one is His Word. The second one is in our circumstances. And the third one is in prayer. And a man who is in the Word of God is learning the will of God and then is able to be obedient to the will. But a person who is not in the Word of God is not going to be following the will of God. Does that make sense? I'll say it again. If we are not in the word of God, if an individual is not in the word of God, they are not following God's will for their life. It's an impossibility. And we can't rely on, well, I, I think spiritually this might be good. And that's where we deceive ourselves by thinking that we're following the will of God, being away from his word where we can't hear from him. Because we've chosen the things of this world to gratify desires of our flesh and our eyes and our pride. And we're moving in a direction away from God. The first one is just simply the word of God. And as I said before, remember this. Because at some point somebody will come to you and say, Well, I've been praying about this and I think that this is what I'm going to do. And your very next question should be, That is great. That would be the phrase you would say. Your question would be, And how has God revealed this to you by his what? By his word. The second one is circumstances. We learn about God's will through circumstances, right? But here's the deal. Oftentimes, we know what God is doing in our lives, right? When the the Israelites were coming out of Egypt... And God, you know, had performed the plagues and and parted the Red Sea and all of that, the wall of darkness. The Israelites knew what he was doing, right? And so often we know that God is working in our lives. But what we often do not know is why he is working in our lives. 
The Israelites knew that God, catch this, the Israelites knew that God was working. Moses knew why God was working. And what we need to do is when we're going through circumstances of life, it's not enough just to say, God's working in my life this week, but we must know what he's trying to accomplish. And that's going to be linked back to his word. I believe that God always prepares us for what he leads us into. And the third area is simply prayer. I shouldn't say simply in front of prayer. It's the greatest necessity that we have in our lives. Prayer. Speaking to God about spiritual things. Seeking to know the heart of the Father. John just simply says this, the world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God, there's an eternal life there. A man who desires the things of God to be accomplished in his life has eternal life. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, I think it is verse 10, Paul writing to Timothy, and he says, Come quickly, because Demas has abandoned me, because Demas loved the things of the world. Guys, I want you to understand, Demas was a right-hand man to Paul. Now, that's pretty cool, wouldn't you say? And yet he was led away, and he desired the things of the world, whether through the lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, or the pride of life. But Demas left the great work that God was doing through Paul and around Paul and went back because he loved the what? The world. Verse 15 says, do not love the world or anything in it. For each and every person in this room, in closing, we each have to make a self-evaluation of what it is that we long for, what it is that we're obedient to the flesh, to obedient to our eyes. Maybe it's pride. Here's the difficult thing. Your flesh isn't going to want to sit down and do an evaluation. It's going to fight you on it. As a matter of fact, you'll look at yourself with maybe better eyes than what we ought. And as we talked this morning, that the first step to conquering our flesh, our eyes, the pride that we have, is making an honest evaluation every day of the sinful nature that we're still connected to. And I believe that it's only whenever we contemplate our sinful nature and we realize what is there that then we cling to the cross. Stu always likes to get us to the cross on early Sunday mornings. And if you're listening, he's probably smiling right now. But if we never look deep inside, and if we try to disguise, you know, well, I'm a good Christian because I go to church, it's not enough, guys. It's a constant reevaluation of the truth and realizing who we are, realizing the grace of God and saying, I choose his grace. I choose his power. I choose his victory. I want to be an overcomer over death and my uh, over flesh like Jesus was an overcomer over the flesh. Does that make sense? Any questions or comments with any of that? Does it make sense? At the point at which we stop evaluating our lives, I believe that we will become cold. But when we realize who we are, the grace of God shines out much more brightly, right?
whoever is forgiven much, what? Loves much. And it means that when we understand what we are, what we used to be in our fleshly nature, we can cling to Christ in a much greater way. And when we cling to Christ, the word becomes a desire because we know that there's the battle of the flesh. When the word becomes a desire, we start learning about God, the will of God, and then we have the desire to do the will of God. And then that will find itself in fulfillment of what John says. I write this so that your joy may be complete. There should not be the broken-hearted, saddened, saddened believer in the body of Christ. There can be hurts, there can be difficulties and so forth, but the joy of the Lord, Scripture says, is what? If we're down, hey, we go to the Lord, and when we realize what's been accomplished, we can give all praise, honor, and glory. We take the eyes off ourselves, eyes off of our past sin, eyes off of our situation, and we put it all onto the cross, and we give thanks to God for the work that He's done in our lives, and that produces praise.